Welcome to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skyler. And I'm Justin. This is our podcast of many things. Where we give you eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games. Let's dive in. So this episode, we're talking about alignment in D&D and what it means, what it does on our game, how we can use it as DMs to help our game, how it can hinder your game. What you've, else? You've probably heard about alignment before. How uh, are you aligned? It's right? usually considered very controversial. I've really never felt it that way, but it mattered more in older editions. So, Right. And there's two pillars to alignment, right? Yeah, it's uh, two axes, right? <laughs> Sort of like a, a grid. So it's a grid with nine squares, essentially. Right. You know, and you're the two axes there, most of you are going to know this, is going to be law and chaos on one and good and evil on the other. I always thought of them, it's interesting just to think about the visual model. I, I've come across this, like the, the two axis, you know, X mm-hmm. and Y, basically, where do you stand? And I always thought of it as like two separate sliding, like on a radio board. I don't, I mean, you know, I always like, thought of it where are like you sliding on each one? points on a graph, you know, and it's kind of, because huh. it's really a spectrum in both directions. But right. when you see the box, you, right. you kind of think of it more in, you know, rigid terms. Right. So on one end, there's a sort of, I mean, it's granular. It's uh, to a certain extent, but it, but it's not too much, right? It's only like you have three options on each axis. Pretty much. You have law or chaos or neutrality between the two, and then good or evil or neutrality between the two. And you can pick any of those nine. Yep. So, you know, what uh, what is like... What does law and chaos mean in the context of alignment? You know, like in, in this game, why do I care about... Like, it gets into a lot of detail when you kind of get into how alignment is woven into the two Dungeons and Dragons and both the rules and the lore and all of that. Um, so when I try to introduce alignment to a new player, I just do it by asking them like two or three kind of simple questions. And I will usually say like, do you... Is the rights of the individual more important to your character than the laws of society or vice versa or what have you? For like chaos versus chaos law versus in that order, case, right? right? The individual being more chaotic, like impulsive, my desire, more, yeah, society more, or others as a whole you know, being an, more adherence lawful. Adherence to order versus uh, an adherence to you know chaos, which usually in a character sense kind of comes down to society over the individual. You know, so you're talking like – like, socialism are we talking about politics here i mean you can look at it that way but essentially what we're looking at is how does that character's actions and you know interacting it's going to have to do with how they look at themselves within the society they're in and it's an intentional abstraction yeah it's a very intentional abstraction you can look at it different ways but generally if you look back at the old dungeon master guides and the way it's laid out it's essentially like all the way back to uh where this first comes from um like three hearts three lines it's kind of how it's laid out um, well, but what about good or evil, right? Like this is th- I, I have family members who feel very strongly about good or evil, and you know D and D had that whole thing in the eighties where it was like mad, right? Like mothers against Dungeons and Dragons. This whole they the thought it was a cult, panic. right? Right. You know. Yeah. So 
that, but that's a key part of alignment. So, what, how does that? What are your so, thoughts on that? I mean, good and evil came a little bit later after Long Chaos had already been added to the game. And personally, we'll talk more of this in detail. I think this is kind of where they shot themselves in the foot by adding this extra layer to the alignment. But usually, when you look at good and evil in this context of Dungeons and Dragons, it's really a scale of selfishness to altruism. And, you know, if you put others before yourself in terms of like you're willing to suffer to help others not suffer kind of deal or you're willing to make sacrifices for the better of others, you know, that may impact yourself negatively, you're probably good. So what I'm hearing from you is basically in this intentionally reductive model, if I'm me, 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 that's basically chaotic evil. And if I'm like everybody else can be better than me, that's basically lawful good. it's evil, but it depends how you go about it, right? You could be lawful evil, meaning like... You'll do anything to win within the rules. And these are not, of course, reflections of the the people who are playing them, right? Like you pick this and you have the option to pick evil in the game because it's a pretend game. Yeah, you know? essentially. So I like mean, on the on the on the schoolyard, you know, you'd pretend to be the X-Men and somebody would have to be the juggernaut or Omega Red or Magneto. You right? still are badass, but you were evil. You were a bad guy. Yeah, and you, you know, that's this is it makes sense because of the way we look at things and we like to classify things as good or evil. Uh, but when you get down to having to attach mechanics to it and when you get into character actions, you know, that's where it gets a little messy. Mm. Um, and different games handle this in kind of different ways aside from the classic like uh you know, two-axis system that we see in Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about alignment and has been is how they've revisited this discussion about values, really, over the editions. And other games that are even D20 derivative, even Dungeons & Dragons modeled it differently, right? Like like you mentioned earlier, it, it came into the game progressively, but when I entered the game in second edition, it was just part of it, you know, and there were mechanics tied to it. And that was true for third edition and fourth edition to a limited degree. But... D20 Modern, which came out of the whole third edition diaspora, just said, yeah, let's make it more abstract. It's a modern world, so law and chaos and good and evil don't make sense because the internet. And uh, (laughs) they're like, instead, you can have allegiances, right? And pick three things, you know, and they gave you a bunch of things that you could pick from, like the such and such corporation, or you could pick family values, or you could pick greed, you know, and that meant certain in-game things, but it was more broad. And then in, in fourth edition, they were like, nah, let's let's take this axis we had and then just like not, let's make it one spectrum, you know? And you had on the one end, chaotic evil, and then one step less than that was evil, and then one step less than that was unaligned, and then one step more was good, and then the other side of the spectrum was lawful good. And there was no, it was less mixing, you know? It was more coarse in that way and kind of clunky. And I, I think that's one of the, reasons that a lot of players were turned off by 4th edition because it took away it made this really kind of uh, distorted lens you know so everybody's like oh, I'm just gonna play an unaligned character who I cares mean, mechani- yeah mechanically it was like a good idea for them to like fit things in alongside it I'm sure, sure. as a system as a but sub-system. players looked at it and they're like this is another way to limit me I don't like it I'm gonna go with unaligned just because I feel a little pigeonholed going you know Good or evil there. And I right, get it. Right. I mean, and from the perspective, and this yeah. is totally like Skylar's bard rant, which is yeah. the, the, the <laughs> game is meant to be a series of tools to help us co-imagine stuff. So it should be able to empower us, not restrict us. And I think that, yeah, while there's flexibility to be found with some constraints, uh, yeah. it's it's 
I mean, it wasn't it's easy to be insensitive about the, the, this. The tricky thing with with a lot of game design is it's one of the few times where you're designing to make something more difficult to accomplish, right? Like you you have to create rules and make it difficult to accomplish something so that there's a challenge. A lot of the time when we design things, it's the opposite. We're trying to make something easier and more convenient. And so it's it's kind of a slippery slope sometimes when you're you know trying to make it fit. Right. I mean, and we've all seen those BuzzFeed quizzes that are like hard because ethics and morality are already so mercurial. Fill out this quiz and we'll tell you your alignment. Does it line up with your religion? You know, question marks. So how do you go about explaining alignment to other people? Because it's like it's one of this. It's the maybe one of the most abstract parts of this game. It's probably one of the harder things to explain to newer players um, if they've never dealt with a system like that. Thankfully, now a lot of people have played video games with morality systems or karma systems or things like that. So it's a little bit more familiar. Right. I know even when I came into playing like third and three point five, I'd already played games that had. Systems similar, like Ultima had systems kind of like that, Ultima Online. Um, and so I had like the whole player choice and like that reflecting on your character like, in some abstract way made sense to me. Right. Um, so there was that. And other tactical RPGs and stuff have little bits of that. Sometimes it's an element that you choose like in like Tactics Ogre or something. Right. But with new players, I really like uh, one thing that I have heard from Matt Covell that I just thought was like the easiest way to explain it. And it was characters have beliefs. They don't have an alignment, right? The beliefs inform their actions. And we can kind of categorize that character and their actions with an alignment. Broadly. Broadly. Um, you know, it, it, was, it should be descriptive and not prescriptive. And I was like, that's a really good, great way of looking at it. Because now when I talk to new players, I go, forget about this alignment chart. What is something that your character believes, right? Like, okay, and like get a couple of those answers, like I was talking about earlier. Like, yeah. is your is your character more worried about the rights of the individual or the good of society as a whole? Where does the line there between those fall for them? Right. And kind of getting the, like just a couple questions can kind of lead them to the right answer. I find a lot of the time without having to go into explaining the whole chart and how it fits into the cosmology and all of that. Right. Because for a new player, you're just usually trying to get them going. Kind of overwhelming, you know. I mean, it, it's abstract and and it sounds an awful lot like asking a values question, which is I, I just tend to start there. You know, I'm like, it, this is. It, Alignment, and I'll talk to a new player, like, you know, alignment to the game is, is a way that we categorize values, you know, and I'll use common media as an example, like Game of Thrones, right? So Jon Snow is probably neutral good. You know, he, he doesn't really care so much for law or impulsiveness. He just wants to try, like, try to do the right thing. And uh, Daenerys is probably chaotic good. You know, she is the one who's in charge. Maybe she's chaotic neutral because she is always right. And mostly she does good stuff, right? Cersei is lawful evil. She's like the queen who manipulates all of everything. You know, so it just ties to something that they know. You might even use real world examples. Like, um, I would say um, Napoleon was probably neutral evil. You know, he had dreams of empire and he went around conquering Mm. the world. Maybe he was lawful evil. I would say that... Uh, See, it gets tricky when you get into historical right. real-world figures. I would say that Genghis Khan was chaotic evil. Genghis Khan sought find, to conquer the world. I find what works better is using fictional characters, like you said, because we all have the same experience and information on that fictional character. Sure, like, sure. The Aragon I saw on screen is the same Aragon you saw. 
but we may have read different things about Genghis Khan and have different opinions based on our cultures and where we live and our, what we've learned about history. But th- that's like a values discussion and how to have that at the table in some kind of but safe way. then you way. go off the rails with everyone naming all these characters and what their alignments be and it becomes an entirely different game than right. what you were planning <laughs> to sit down and play. Yes, yes, yes. So... I guess word to the wise, you know, alignment is one of those easy traps to fall into. I think though that it's a it's an easy way. The other part I talk about it is how to introduce it to new players to diffuse certain things at the table, you know. So in a game, in a, in the game, it's a game of imagination. What happens if we are like in Lord of the Rings, killing a bunch of orcs, but somebody at the table is offended by the bloodshed because this person values like peace and love and wants to make the world uh, a better place and bless them for that good on good on them great whatever you know so we go well you know in this game because it's all make-believe here's this character's value structure and here's an easy parlance well i'm gonna hand you the article for alignment and you can read all about that and then you can ask questions later you know it's like a it's one of the easy kind of imaginative hooks into value structures try to understand Somebody else. It can be helpful in that regard for a new player. Like, hey, your character's values or beliefs are this, and this is how they're going to act. I mean, if you're playing a game where you don't like slain orcs, you've chosen this is the wrong game. This is the wrong game for that. (laughs) (laughs) Go play some other game. This is a game about killing monsters, taking their belongings, and then, yeah, that's pretty much it. I had a this fun side story. There was a game I was playing with a, uh, a group for a while. We played a bunch of different types of games, and one of the guys when we were doing D and D we're doing Ravenloft. I was running a Ravenloft game. And this he was uh, a Frenchman. I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, but uh he got so bent uh about this particular game because he had an imprint on the mechanics of it that you would pick an alignment, be even a lawful good paladin, but that you go off and wantonly murder orcs and goblins and so on like the United States did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he, so for him, it had he, this political charge this, to he, it. He got so triggered by the by the playing of the D&D game with characters that had alignments, so much so that he blew up at a session and he left. And he just like stormed out. It was very disruptive. It was rather unfortunate. I felt bad, even though I, we were just like, they saved a girl who was being drowned in a lake. You know, there weren't like, murderizing happening but he but he came from a warhammer background which doesn't have alignment in this way and a couple of other guys at the, at the table had too so that colored because there was this conflict and a lot of it's apparently centered around alignment uh back in the 80s and 90s yeah. you know so anyway i, I think that my point by this is that it can definitely plug people in sometimes and some as people, a dm it, it really matters to some people you want to be able to handle that better maybe than i did which was to stand there wide-eyed and gaping that this guy was losing Why would you be so upset about over this? Over alignment in <laughs> D&D. Like, so, some people care a lot. We're all, we're all in our 30s at least now. Come on, you know, we're not 14. Like, anyway. So, um, I think, I think it's... Be- the best part, though. <laughs> well. <laughs> Just shows you some people really care about alignment. They do. They do. And I think that one of the better tools I've come upon for talking about alignment, for examples, as far as they go, just which are mostly for how do you talk about this? It's a very complicated part of the game, are things like the trolley problem. So uh, the trolley problem, for those who don't know, is imagine that there's a trolley hurtling down a track. And on the track, there's a fork. And on one end of the fork, there's a man, and he's tied to the track. And on the other end of the fork, there is nothing. 
and the trolley is just hurtling down there and you are standing next to the switch. And if you do nothing, the trolley will go on the fork that has the man and kill him. So, you know, there's a pretty clear moral choice here. You flip the switch, the trolley goes to the other track, man is saved. Now imagine the next step of this trolley problem is on one end of the track, there's a man who's tied. And on the, the one previously where it would have been safe, there are five people who are tied. And by default, the trolley is going to go and hit the five people. But you are standing next to the switch. So you have the ability to flip it to kill the one instead of the five. But if you do nothing, the five will, will, get, will die. It's it's one of those almost unanswerable ethics questions. Right, right. It's a no-win right? situation, right? It's a lose-lose. That's that's the point of the but trolley problem. But that shows problem. you why it's so hard to take something like an alignment of morality and ethics and put it into that this little exactly, box exactly. Axis. Especially you know, and it gets more complicated too. Like imagine you you think you start thinking about like how would you solve this? Well, what if you know maybe there's some way to stop the trolley? Or what if you're standing on top of a bridge, like some way to stop the trolley? And standing next to you on top of the bridge over the track instead of the switch is an evil fat man. Just stand, you know, stand there, and then you know he's bad. However you know he's just bad. And you could stop the trolley by pushing the fat man onto the track, and he would die. And then both people there's, on all the sides would be saved, and the, the evil man would die, you know, but you've just committed murder. There's a lot of derivatives to the trolley question. Right, and, sure. these, and these have corollaries in this game where we play as heroes, and we invade dungeons, and we kill monsters, yeah. and we take their treasure. The, the one thing where it differs is that alignment is really kind of woven into the fabric of, of D&D down to the cosmological level in terms of, you know, you have gods that are tied to alignments and even planes. So it, it functions a little bit more different than in ours because we don't have this definitive of, right. hey, look, here's this law of the universe and how things function. Right. You know, like the whole soul cycle in D&D is dependent on these kind of this alignment Which, at a basic level. If you know how... To if you know how it works and how you can leverage alignment in the game, then it's also a really powerful way for your character, I think, to to build your yeah. character, to gain to gain stuff that you want to achieve your goals in the world. Because there's a lot of lore and systems that are tied to it, although less in fifth edition. Definitely. But like, why? So we've talked about a lot of the sort of pitfalls there are for alignment, but there's like history around it being controversial as well. You know, like I came in around three, three five is where I really started playing. Like I, I had. Looked at a lot of 2E books, but I never, like, had figured out how to play them. Maybe it was Thacko, but... <laughs> Thacko was a beast. Once you got it, you got it. It was actually not bad, but, like, it was I was weird. also 8, so that might have had something to do with it. <laughs> right. But uh, 3 was a little bit easier for me to grasp onto, and by then they had kind of redefined the alignments in a little bit more of a systematic way, and I just truly didn't understand why it was such a controversial thing. I mean, I was like, okay, paladins have alignments, but that's because they have to follow an oath, and following an oath is a pretty lawful thing. It makes sense to me. Like, yeah. it was annoying having the restrictions on certain classes. That was about as far as my feelings on alignment went. I like, mean, I, I really did. It didn't seem like to me like that was that big of a deal. Right. Say three, three, five. So what we're we're talking that like barbarians had to be chaotic, um, bards couldn't be lawful, monks had to be lawful, paladins had to be lawful good, stuff like that. that, that kind right. Of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so like in second edition, you could only be lawful good and a paladin. Like there was, it was that was and it was only available to humans. You know, yeah, there so was all the weird <laughs> there was like weird racism baked into it yeah, too. Yeah. You know, like you're an elf, you can't be a, you can only be a fighter or a cleric or a, a rogue, a thief. I guess they called it back then. Yep, thief. And uh, and or a mage. And if you're a dwarf, you can't be anything but a cleric or a fighter. Or, or a thief. You could be a thief, actually. It's, that's true. Humans can do everything. You know, and it's like, I, I, it was just in that category of, 
It's been interesting weird, watching the restrictions arise more and more. Weird morals baked into the game. Yeah. But know? even then, it was it was mainly paladins where we really see uh, these things come into play a lot more. Paladin was one of the, it's been one of the main vehicles for alignment mattering mechanically within games that you players will deal with pretty consistently. Yeah, I mean, in 5th edition, I think, does Paladins better than every other edition. You know, they're, the oaths are really cool. I think that you can be a Paladin and not have to be lawful good and just be a convicted individual, you know, the full of conviction is, is, is really cool. Um, I think that uh, I wonder what it would be like if we had, well, I don't know, I was going to say if we had more classes that were restricted by alignment. Maybe, like... I'm glad we don't. <laughs> I mean, it would be nice, but wouldn't it be nice to have some corollary bad to the paladin's good? Yeah, I mean, you, you now you just take a different paladin subclass. There's plenty of them that are like, you know, in the DMG because it's the evil variation type of class. That's one of the things that yeah, you, you can, can do, do with the paladin now. Right, is chaotic evil, yeah, you can, oath of vengeance paladin. There's plenty of different oaths. Here's that your kind of black allowed, knight. Exactly, to lean into the black guard style remember we you know we used to have the black guard prestige class you had to fall exactly. right so it's kind of nice having less of those but i mean back in the day there was the detect evil ability that made paladins problematic because if you had someone in the party who was evil the paladin wouldn't fight out and then they'd often be obliged to fix the problem with a sword yeah or a fist uh there's one thing i think that you know, so it's it's cool we can be more who we are, whatever class we want to play. In this edition with your paladin, you know, choose your alignment that reflects your values, whatever, go for it. And be a badass in our co-imagination. Great. But in the older edition where paladins were, and this is, I guess, back to second edition, like, all right, there were rules for how you could be a paladin. There were rules for how you could be a lawful, good, powerful paladin. But you only ever encountered monsters that were fallen paladins, or there was like a supplement that talked about this character who fell and what that gave him for his fall. It made it feel special. Yeah. Each, there was, they were different, each one. The Death Knights were not all equal in any given time you encountered one. You know, so I don't know that I would, that they're true or traded. I guess it's just interesting to me the trade off that that's something that we encounter less now, you know, than a little bit. We have like a really easy way to build. However, you know, it's like I could think as a DM, it's very easy in in 5e to go, now we've said that, build your evil knight, you know, your death knight. Go yeah, for it. You have a little more freedom and how you want to build, but there's definitely, like they say, freedom within the box, right? Like having those restraints on you previously kind of made it a little bit easier to get an idea of who that character might be and how to sure. who they might become. But I think most of it, most of it really comes from party conflicts. I with mean, that pal- with said paladin. Yeah, I think, it, and this is, like, Party Conflict has been part of the game, I think, for the... Since it was a game. For, for the start of it. You Since know, it was a game. Players disagree, and usually a board game is has clear rules and a rule book that you reference to figure out what the adjudication is. And this game has a rule book that has all of that except one extra, which is that the DM gets to decide based on fiat, which makes it what it is. Um I think it's fun how they've tried to change this throughout the different editions, right? From where they first had Law or Chaos and they introduced Good and Evil, and then they changed what it meant in 3rd edition after it had meant sort of the same thing for the 1st and 2nd and a half editions. And then 4th edition made it even more reductive, and 5th edition put it back, but now it doesn't matter. Super simplified, like a wave sentence here and there. I think that one of the ones that's interesting to me 
in the third edition era. And it was like third edition, they revised alignment. And then 3.5, they left it mostly alone, but expanded on, clarified some of the rules and the new rule books. And then after that, they published the Book of Vile Darkness, which is also an artifact in the game. Nerds. And the Book of Exalted Deeds, uh, which wasn't the artifact in the game, which are the corresponding chaotic evil and lawful good source books for if you have a character that's in either of those or your DM who wants to build them. And remember that in third and three, five characters were the same that the DM built that the players could build. It was the same, you know, that wasn't like in fourth and fifth edition where there's different rule sets for those. But it lets you go, like it took it to another level. They leaned into alignment. They were like, no, no, actually, if you really want to be super good and you give up all of your material possessions, you can have the Path of Poverty in the Book of Exalted Deeds, which is way overpowered. That's a good one. Super OP, like the most broken of broken powerful. You knew your party had your back if you needed a healing <laughs> potion course. or something. You didn't need a healing potion ever, though, because you, you like regenerated. You don't crazy have to carry stuff. any treasure. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> right. Times. Just a monk. Can I get super awesome? I'm basically a god walking around on the earth. Um. And, you know, there was lots of different evil in the in the Book of Our Darkness, but it got me thinking about the difference between what that led to, those two extremes, and how you'd interpret someone who was exalted good versus someone who's normal good so versus someone who's, like, vile evil or just evil. So I say it because I think that this is an interesting part of the design where they leaned into the controversy. And they're like, maybe we can just clarify by adding more. Didn't work, though. It, it didn't, but there's some <laughs> cool stuff that we'll talk about in a little while, I think, <laughs> that did come out of it. In a way that you can use it in your game to interesting effect. I mean, yeah, I, I enjoyed those books. Uh, but it still comes down to most of the time... It didn't solve party conflict. Yeah, though. no, that's the thing. is it, it comes right back to that party conflict layer of that's where the alignment usually meets... The rubber kind of meets the road with the uh, players and the conflict. But it can. I mean, it, oh God. Some players love it and they don't mind. Like, and it, they'll play into it. Players who like drama and the role play a little bit more I usually mean, don't mind there being like a alignment a quirky is an, alignment is an easy setup, right? Like you and I are both in a game where one of the players is a chaotic evil character, and I think that there's a separate conversation around it. And he and I had this conversation around, like, you know what? All right, fine. You can play whatever alignment you want, but what do you intend with this character, right? And it's an easy signal for him. He did that because he wanted to signal something very easily for a way that he wanted to go with his role play. So, you know, he did that to avoid party conflict. I think that that just takes maybe a little bit of like growing up, self-examining and knowing that like you're here to play a game and enjoy it with people and not to argue over a philosophy or what's right or wrong, right? I mean, chaotic neutral. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, neutral is just whatever I want to do right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's you have to be careful with it because no, he's chaotic evil. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> you have to be not not with that, but with just with how you kind of deal with those party conflicts that come off of alignment. Because you're always gonna have that player, the chaotic neutral player, we we're just talking about who. Oh, well, I'm just playing my character slash alignment, bro. That's who I am. I just do whatever I want all the time. And I mean, nowadays we're adults and you're like, come on, dude, stop being a dick. But as we were, you know, when you were younger, like everyone was chaotic neutral because they didn't want anyone to tell them what to do. But I think it's the same thing with any of the alignments. Chaotic neutral is the easiest one because it's described as like, you do what you want. Nobody gets to tell you what to do, you know, and that's very attractive. But 
we've all played in that game with a lawful good guy who bludgeons you with his goodness or his law. Or the usually a paladin, right? Exactly. Or the chaotic evil character who is like sitting there in a corner and lights the building on fire and attacks the barkeep because they can, you know. And like we talked about this earlier in a in a prior session on player types and what people get out yeah, of the game. I mean, that's why some DMs don't allow evil characters. Right. This is this is exactly the same as that, but it's an even more coarse categorization of player type, right, and preference in the game, which is why I think it's smart to lean in, in some cases, to that it has complexity, rather than to make it too restrictive, like 4E did. But anyway, I think that part of the game, that that chaotic neutral character, and often the chaotic evil character, because they're not that different, right? They're both deeply intensively impulsive, and one doesn't hate good, and the other actively seeks to harm others, you know, yeah, like there's a, there's a very close, those two. It's definitely something that, you know, I've heard a lot of DMs and roll top, uh, tabletop role-playing game players say that it's because of video games and the video game tradition. No is, consequences. It's very, yeah, there's no consequences. It's very much you do whatever you want. Like in any role-playing game, you can pretty much, it's if you can get away with it, you go for it. Your character is, would usually be probably chaotic neutral, even chaotic evil sometimes. But I think that people do that in life anyway. I agree. People know? usually, if they get away with it, they're more likely to go for right. it. And so I don't really think that's that strong of an argument, but it is one that you will hear. I've definitely been one of those DMs in the past who has banned evil alignments at the table. For certain games, yeah. It depends upon... It depends on what game you want to run. And it depends on who shows up up at the table. Yeah, that like, too. It's really, for me, it's like, all right, from what I know of... Because I very much view myself as the DM as like, all right, we're going to facilitate this game that we're all going to play. And uh, and I know that if someone shows up, it's like when you play Cards Against Humanity. It's like that one player who maybe gets all of the jokes and there's that other player who says all of the ones that are a little bit over the line. And you laugh, but like you know it's a little bit over the line. And in D&D, that's chaotic evil, <laughs> right? So you want to be able to balance versus other players when they show up. So it doesn't devolve into like, why would you do that, you jerk? Don't attack that guy. I was talking to him. I'm just playing my alignment, bro. Oh my god, you make me so mad! You know, like those nobody wants to have that table. Yeah, exactly. So there's certain times where just you know banning evil alignments or something is totally justified, especially if you're like, all right, you guys are an elite squad of good aligned knights of the round table. It's like, yeah, okay, you're probably not chaotic evil. And if you are, like that's so much work for everyone else to have to deal with. Right. Right. I mean, and it makes it hard when some player is like, I'm going to play a scoundrel, a rogue. I'm going to play a thief. He, he's a grifter and he's maybe an assassin. And like, that's a classic fantasy trope. You can do it. Sure. You know, easy to build even. And another player is like, I'm going to play a paladin who's lawful good knight. And hates who is people a who knight steal. of order. And, is, and he's worked hard to stop the thieves in the town. You know, right. Welcome and, to D&D. Right, exactly. And like, that's baked into the game. It's baked into the game. So, you know, and I think that on some level people show up for that, but values are a hard thing to talk about and what we want out of the game is a hard thing often to talk about i mean that's the the alignment system is trying to give you a language in which you can talk about beliefs and values that's like kind of what it is it's, it's a shared language to help us kind of navigate that because it can be very hard to express that in a way that other people might it's very relative right what is evil to me may not be evil to the next person one of the things i like about alignment just intrinsically it's a clunky system it's intentionally reductive i know you know but one of the things i like about it is that when you look through the axis and you see what the possibilities are automatically what comes to mind next is well i wonder what alignment i would be of course and that's so you it's know, like baked in introspection next to do. you know i mean i always come out as 
Lawful neutral. <laughs> I'm not surprised. No, neither am I. <laughs> there are rules for a reason. I, I usually come out at neutral good. Depends on if I'm feeling like an asshole, then I'm definitely chaotic good. I might just do I the right say thing. I you can but, go you know, between the two. It's, it's, it goes depending on the year. Depends which, on how drunk you are. <laughs> uh, yeah. You'll be more chaotic neutral after that next beer. Shut up your face, Justin. Drunkenness makes you slide down the scale sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think though I'm feeling parched. This is pretty heady stuff. It's it kind is. of it's kind of out there, and it's you know some heady stuff. Very controversial. So I think that I I want to stop in and have a have a brew. It's it's a good thing we found this tavern. We always do. I know. I mean, don't... it's a good spot. It's it's like you always start in one. For <laughs> I don't know. Let's stop in. Let's go in. Welcome to Tavern Talk, the part of the show where we uh, toast to our listeners with a delicious brew. Thank you, you for listening. To you. And thank you for thinking about these heady, strange topics about alignment with us. We know you've heard of alignment before. This is our obligatory alignment episode. Uh, I think that talking about alignment is an excellent thing to do with libations because it eases things as long as you don't start shouting at each other. I guess that's true in normal life anyway. But this beer we're drinking today is called Night Rider, and it's spelled knight like a knight in armor, and rye as in the grain, and der as in thrr. It's It's a local, <laughs> it's a local Seven Stills brewery and distillery here in San Francisco, um, and I picked it because it reminds me of the era that I started learning this game and started thinking about how I would categorize TV characters and all kinds of other tropes with alignment. Because once I started learning how D&D was, it's like a set of tools in a certain way for thinking about imaginary realities and imaginary stories in a game together. But then you can, if you like are into it, you start thinking about it all the time and you start thinking about how you would categorize life and your brain just oh. keeps going and going and going and going. Of so, course. We all went on those forum topic posts where it was like, what alignment is this character? And everyone's arguing about it for 20 pages. So Knight Rider is basically Batman, and that means he's basically chaotic good because he does whatever he wants, and he's a vigilante. And Kit is probably neutral good because he's not as rebellious as Knight Rider, but he'll go along with it as long as it's worth the greater good. Also, he's a car. So, so yeah. I have a fondness for him because Transformers. I mean, it's a good reason. So, you know, I don't have, I've never had a lot of rye beers, and uh, I I really like this. It's it's very straightforward. I don't, I guess you could think of it as like, yeah, it's a little bit renegade like Knight Rider was, because they're like, hey, we're just making a rye beer. It's more in rye a, than barley. In a tall can. I mean, it's it's a rye beer in a India pale ale style a little bit but it's not i don't know my, I, my favorite thing about those is they sometimes call them rye pas but yeah right pa instead of ipa uh, i think i, I kind of love that i haven't had a lot of rye pas i haven't had a lot of rye beer I, and it i don't know it just has a nice it was very forward when i first tasted it it was kind of tart you know but as i drink it more i'm like yeah this is like a pretty normal excellent yeah, beer it's, kind of, it's, it's got a good punch solid. in the middle i dig it, it it's a little less hard on the palate at the end of the of the flavor, just because it's it's a rye beer with the hops jacked up instead of a traditional IPA. So it has kind of a slightly different flavor profile. Yeah. 
IPAs are still all the fucking rage right now in microbrew stuff. So it seems I mean, so they they're going to be in the United States forever. Yeah, kind of a big thing. So it's nice to find something that's not like the same thing again. Also, Knight Rider. Mainly that. Mainly Knight Rider. How does the that theme song thing. go? I don't know. They all go start with that. Some kind of some kind of jumpy song. So we're also doing this contest. Before we get back to talking about heady things about alignment for you, our listeners, and the contest looks like if you share our show, and that could be a retweet, it can be sending us proof that you mentioned it to your friend, it can be an email chain. Yeah, you can add us on Twitter or Instagram, you can tag us. With Fire Arms Radio. We you will enter you something to uh, firearmsradio at gmail.com. Into a raffle. And in that raffle, you will have the opportunity to win the deluxe core set, fifth edition, core rule books, DM screen, all foil covered. So shiny. That way you can give your books to a new player, get shiny new ones. And double win. One of the best hand-me-downs is a role-playing game book. It's a they usually have some character themselves, and that adds to the experience. Receiving one, looking through it, you know, it's a big deal when someone gives cherished. you your first role-playing book. Here's a player's handbook, little boy. Here's a player's handbook, spouse. I gave my brother his first dungeon master's guide. Here's a player's handbook, bro. It's a nice DMG. Hand. It's a good handoff. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like, Welcome. I think that. Welcome to the other side of the table. This is this is exactly <laughs> it's exactly it. It's exactly it. It's like D and D has a weird power dynamic. Alignment certainly helps with that because somebody knows all the rules and can talk about like values and morals, and the DM is the person who's on top for better and worse, depending on the table. But being able to say to somebody else, here's your own foil set. You, I anoint you now. You have the ability to run games. Go. Do it. Be a DM. It's run cool. one for me. <laughs> all right. Back to the show. All right, let's go back to the show. So where does the idea for alignment come from? What is it even like? Why did they even add this to the game in the start, you know? So when you look back at the history of D&D, it's kind of clear because they labeled where they took these ideas from pretty clearly. Um, Three Hearts, Three Lines by Paul Anderson is one that you really see the law versus chaos kind of explained and drawn out for you to see kind of how that functions. Hmm. And they kind of drew for that to throw it into the earliest versions, actually, of Chainmail before it became, quote unquote, the fantasy game. And Arneson added alignment to Chainwell, supposedly, he says, because of one player backstabbing another player. Interesting. <laughs> and so after the game, they had to sit down and kind of come up with this, like, law versus chaos. They didn't get into good or evil yet. Law versus chaos kind of system to kind of deal with this because before they had been playing at a zoomed-out view with units and troops and battalions and whatnot. Now that they've zoomed in to this more character level, they're having character problems that they hadn't ran into previously. I wonder what that must have looked like that made that decision, right? Like one player decides that these troops backstab the other player and well, do it they like this. they were already zoomed in, you know. Right, they were, they was... were zoomed in, you know, but like that meant that they were probably all looking at the board and they all knew the optimal choice for a said, certain outcome. No. And it may have been like a no-win scenario, like the trolley problem. And I, I'm just making this up. And one of the players decided that 
the conclusion he came to was different than the probable conclusion that the others came to. You know, his decision was, well, if I do it the way that they all expect, all my guys are going to die versus if I kill that guy and offer to ally with the enemy, at least maybe I survive. So it's a values call. You know, it makes sense in a war game in that perspective, but it's not. <laughs> it's different, right? Because right, right. reading what Arneson wrote, it was essentially because like one and then eventually two of his players were just kind of being assholes. Uh. And they were essentially labeled as evil after that. And <laughs> they just antagonized the rest of the party for the rest of the campaign. Well, so Bob and Jim are evil. So they it, just play evil characters, which is basically broadcasting to your table. Those guys are assholes. It, it started. I love that. That's how it began in a way because it, <laughs> it's, it's not exactly, how it is today. Always though. Not always. It's better now, but it's such the classic issue. You but wouldn't it do that. Evil. It was chaotic. It was whoa, chaotic. Back whoa! Then. I was just. Playing my alignment, bro. Just being chaotic, man. Just just, just chaotic neutral ended up over here. You can't be mad. Yeah. So that, you know, that's kind of where you first see it come in. And then uh, 1976, like Eldritch Wizardry and a couple other things is where you see Gygax implement that more good and evil. So something could be lawful good or chaotic evil and not just lawful or chaotic. I mean, it stands to reason, too, if you're thinking about fantastic things and you think about angels or devils, there's probably some yeah, good or evil thing, right? associated with it that. It kind of makes sense when you start looking at when they did Elder Twizzardry right. and paladins and more magic and things like that where, you know, paladins very clearly were, they had to be good in some way. Yeah. And so it makes sense, you know, from that angle, but I think it is what caused a lot of the issues uh, be- because morality is such a relative thing for so many people. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you start to see it show up in the mechanics with paladins and different classes and spells. Uh, you see it with magic items, you know, protection from good, protection from evil, detect good, detect evil. This is actually something that I I miss from a prior edition as just a sidebar. Like I, in second edition, it had some of this. They had some of the most powerful stuff because you're like magic circle against, you know, and uh it would be basically magic circle, magic circle against chaos, and you could stop any kind of creature from entering that. It was big; it lasted a long time. Third edition leaned into it more, like third edition did, like more of all of the things. That was just third edition. Yeah, and three five was like more of more of all the things. Precisely. But they they did a lot of this kind of detect evil, mag- protection against evil. Um, greater protection against evil, greater magic circle against greater magic. And Pathfinder still, I guess, is down that road. But I miss that. I miss that there were more in some level. I, I don't know that they were the, the best solution for alignment, you know, but I miss it. There were more clear mechanics in 5e. And they're not tied to alignment, you know, that you could have magic effects. And you could just, like, pull that stuff from prior editions as a DM. You, you always could. could. It's very easy to still implement. I even went the I went the other way in prior games. I'm like, let's do D20 Modern. We have magic circle against allegiance. You know, like, magic circle against D- Disney Corp. I don't know, whatever. Magic circle <laughs> against Koch Brothers. You pick, right? Like, and have it be more abstract, but it just gets kind of complicated. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is they even want to, you know, they want to step too far with tying mechanics and things to the alignments and that they even had the alignment languages back in Oh, man. Yeah, remember those in like AD&D, like the first edition you had. This, the, this came before me. I'm glad I missed like, it. I'm, this is one of those things I'm also glad I missed. Um, there was essentially a dialect or language that your character could speak simply because of their alignment. Um, it was not really the best idea. They actually dropped it in second edition of AD&D because it was so stupid. Some of the comparisons are kind of, you know, in today, kind of, through today's lens, you're like, uh. You're like, oh, that's interesting. And like, 
at least Gary later on admitted it was probably not the best edition. And when you hear his explanation, it kind of makes sense. He essentially wanted Thieves' Cunt to not be the only secret language. He felt like there should be other secret languages aside from Thieves' Cunt, which there are now, right? You have this druidic language that you see even in 5e today. Second edition had right? that too, yeah. Totally. So you, you, added, you added other secret languages. Um, but what he was looking for was kind of uh, Latin for Roman Catholic persons or Hebrew for Jewish folks in terms of he wanted there to be like, you know, if you went to church, you, your religion had this language of Latin and it maybe wasn't the language you spoke all the time. And that right. was kind of the kind of what he was looking for. I mean, at, at its core, I actually really like the idea behind that, that what you – like, because you think, think about what he's getting at. He's, he's getting at – that if you whatever your background and your values were meant that you had a way to communicate with people who shared those values exactly. that was language. like a shorthand or a, or a quick language you know like thieves can't or like druidic or whatever and that's a nifty idea right but not necessarily tied to alignment yeah. but he was thinking in coarse he, he terms he's some, like oh, it's alignment you know, something to kind of cut, cut across like national and racial boundaries in that you know you would all share this this right. language like this the way the catholic church had used latin in medieval times um, but I'm glad we took that out because that was a little ridiculous. It, it just made no sense when you tried to implement it. Like, yeah, and it's yeah. easy to run afoul of multicultural issues, you know. Like that too. I think it's funny that he says since he regretted that he, re- he regretted the edition as the non-cleric user would have only limited have a limited vocabulary. Right. It, it was the same thing. It was like, yeah, those guys going to church didn't know what they were saying. They don't speak Latin most of the time. Right. Like, I you can't know, read this book. But, but what's interesting <laughs> to me about that is like he's complaining that he felt limited by the rules. That he made that up. That he made up. That he made up. Welcome. And I'm like, I know. Man, you know, like, Gary. you can change it. Didn't you? Wouldn't you also, the guy who talked about, like, rule zero? Classic you know? Gary. <sighs> the Gary double talk. I love it. <laughs> like, if you don't know all of the things, you're a bad DM. But it's okay if you don't know them all. <laughs> right, don't worry. Right. You're, you're, you can do it. I feel like Gary like, Gagax gets to be all the alignments. You know, he's uh, like, you never know what yeah. one you're going to get out of him at any, any moment. Depends might. what year you're looking at. <laughs> right. But. The thing is funny because, like, they pulled away from more alignment mechanics uh, after 3.5. You know, they changed – they tried to simplify it a little bit in 4E. People were very upset, mainly because a lot of people approach D&D as a culture rather than just a game. Yeah. The alignment is part of the D&D culture. Yeah. Um, even though – and that kind of shows because we look at 5E, the creators considered taking it out. I kind of wish they had just to, uh, just to shake the boat a little bit. But – I mean, it wouldn't feel like D and D exactly, and that's why they put it in because that's how people felt. They're like, it won't feel like D and D unless that's in there. I, I don't disagree with you, but I, the nerd in me is like, so give me a better subsystem, please. I know, I'm like, D twenty like, modern, come on, right? I'm like, well, if you're gonna get rid of it, what are you gonna replace it with? Yes, like you can't just like take my systems. However, they really just kind of cut all the ties that of mechanics to those alignments. Like, you don't see as many mechanics hardly tied to alignments anymore. Like classes don't have alignment restrictions. Uh, races are mentioned as leaning towards a certain alignment, but it's not enforced. Deities are listed with alignments. And that's most of the information you get on deities these days. I actually, I, I have sort of a lament about this, this particular piece because you're right from the player's perspective, any real ties to alignment are superficial. It just—it seems like why does everyone at the table care so much about what alignment I pick when I look through this book? But it's, it's not even the index. But like <laughs> the alignment system is still part of the game, very much so, because if you look through the monster manual, which are 
the foes that you're going to face. And like we said earlier, this is a game about fighting monsters and getting treasure and rewarding yourself. It's an escapist fantasy. It's a power fantasy or yeah. whatever version of that that you want. But all of the monsters have alignments in the monster manual too. And that means that that matters for them, you know, for how you categorize each one. But the alignments <laughs> are still there. But the monsters are still, they still have alignments. They still... It matters to them. Devils come from a certain plane. And there are adventures yes. that take you to that plane, right? Demons come Definitely. from a different plane. Definitely. You have to deal with them in different ways. It, it tells you information about yeah. your foe. And why I lament it, why I'm sad about it, is because when I spend my money to buy a product, I want the rule system to be a, more cohesive in certain areas. I want it to have clear threads. This is an area where it suffers. This is where d struggles sometimes. This edition. This edition does a lot of things good. And uh, this is an area where it's not as, I think it's not as cohesive. And yeah, I was intentional. They backed off. But that feels to me like they're relying upon the community to carry it forward. And I'm like, look, I get it. Alignment is part of the game. All you had to do was like, give me a paragraph or three in the DMG about how you can make the player, that's, give the players some benefits. That's classic or D&D, the though, handbook. where they're not going to actually give you advice on how to DM or run a game. I they, fully expect a they, supplement where they expand on alignment that, and deities it's and that the planes. D&D has always kind of struggled with in terms of like, they'll give you the tools, but they won't tell you how to use them. They're like, here's a book on DMG. And it's a great book, but you really do have to do a, little, a lot more work yourself by looking through, thinking how you're going to apply it. Whereas when you look at other games, they will give you, like, Dungeon World, for example, gives you great advice on how to run your game without getting too into, like, useless generalities. You know, right? There has to be some specific context for GM advice to be useful. Um, It's really helpful when it's like, hey, here's how you could use this mechanic and how it affects your player psychology. Just basic things like that. Right. Especially, you know, as an experienced GM, like, you want to pick up and run the game and see how how should I interface with with your thing. And alignment is part of this. And I have some expectations because of giving you my money previously. Right. So, you know, throw me a bone here. And that's the thing. Like, when we look at... That's why it can be frustrating if you know the fabric of the D&D universe because you know how much alignment can matter when we get into the lore and into the very kind of the way the universe is set up. Fortunately, uh, there, though, D- this edition is pretty easy to bolt onto. It is. It's, it's easy to bolt onto, but that's probably due to lack of things getting in your way. Right. Uh, you know, when you look at the outer planes, like some of them have alignments to the point that they are pretty much a physical man- manifestation of that alignment. And... When you kind of look at that and you look at the cosmology, you realize how it's kind of it's really woven in there, kind of like a universal law, almost like gravity, right? It's a universal law of reality in D and D. Like the souls are, you know, cycle that you die and stuff is based on right. the gods and their alignments. And if you're you a chaotic have, evil character, when you die, your soul goes to the abyss. You have planes made out of alignments, so it's something that's kind of almost re- woven into its reality. So it, it's kind of when they pull back on this in something like Five E, those of us who know this lore very well, like yourself, are kind of feel like they're getting shorted a little bit because they're like, this is really important. You can't just like. This is the basis of this whole universe and how things function. Like you can't just pull away from it. And I get that. And one one that pisses me off the most in this edition is the spell protection from evil and good. <laughs> so let's go it this is just it just kind of drives me crazy because here's a few things. One, it has nothing to do with alignment. It offers protection from aberrations, celestials, elementals, fiends, fey, and undead. Uh, it gives you disadvantage on their attacks in coming towards you. 
and uh, immunity to be charmed, frightened, or possessed by them. This basically is protection from outsiders from prior editions. Essentially, yes. Plus undead. Plus undead. And it makes no sense because elementals are neutral. They are not good or evil most of the time. So that's, I don't know why they're included. Um, And also evil and good, really? That sounds fucking terrible. Like, why don't you just say good and evil like everybody else? Like, Or, you know, since we're categorizing things that don't need necessarily to be categorized, what a protection from alignment. It just feels unnecessarily contrarian to say evil and good. Protection from magic. Protection from monsters. Nobody says that. Everyone says good and evil because that's how we're culturally trained. I I would argue that nobody even says protection from good and evil, right? Like, you either say, like, I need some protection from evil. The phrasing of it is just awkward it's on true purpose. it's always good and evil right yeah, like so they decided just, was it just like well, again i would love to have been in the room a know, fly on the wall did anyone was say it, anything was it they were like talking about like yeah well the problem is protection from evil and they were just talking about protection from evil in the office and it's like some like i'm imagining like uh, wizards hasbro corporate space in washington with staplers and copy machines and like dudes asking for tps reports and stuff and they're like well i don't know protection from evil is an issue but we can't oh it's not just evil because nerds it has to be good too but not chaotic it's too much like so we're t- we call protection from yeah, evil it's, and good it's and literally it's on like a whiteboard somewhere it yeah, makes me course, really mad but it's it's literally protection from outsiders but it, it drives me nuts plus undead be, it, plus undead Thank you. It just, yeah, exactly, right? You could, also, you could say, yeah, it's protection from good or evil creatures plus elementals. It just doesn't make sense. Right. It, it's one of those things where it's like they tried to bring this relic through. Protection and, from supernatural? It, well, the thing is, why not just actually give it protection from evil and good? Like, why not actually do that? I, I mean, I, it'll be an extremely overpowered spell in I some regards. I think that this but, should just be a function of the spell sanctuary. I think that you should have like a lower level sanctuary, and this should be the super version of it, and that's that, and you named it it's wrong. Bizarre. I'm calling yeah, you out. The name alone is a fail. Designers. Anyway, that's just a personal one I had to rant on today, because I, I, it just drives me nuts. It's why, why would you do this? Why? Right, plus elementals, which don't have alignments. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm like, oh, uh, okay. Like, that was my first thing when I first looked at it. I'm like, cool. And I look it up. I'm like, oh, this has nothing to do with alignments. And wait a second. Elementals are usually neutral. <laughs> what are you whop, doing? Whop. Anyway, it's one of those things that just, like, kind of drives me nuts. Because when you look at alignment in the cosmos, it's woven in there. You have planes that are literally the alignments, you know? Right. You have, like, each one. As a DM, I think that one of the things you can think about is plane travel, plane jumping is built into the game. In It takes a while. You know, you get to high enough level, you get plane shift, which I think is fifth level, right? So, you know, you got to be yeah. later on, 10th, 11th, 12th level before you're going to get access to so that. you jump around doing superhero shit. Right. And you're, like, warping between realities and in the lore, which means in the adventures you buy, which means in the money you spend – the lore is usually tied to an alignment. And you want to make, A, the best out of the money you spent on that product, and B, part of that means empowering the players with the choices they've made. So if you're playing, let's say, in their new Baldur's Gate adventure that takes you down to the first level of hell, some of the areas, if you have a group of players that buy into the alignment system very strongly, might be to play off of that because hell in this lore, in this world, is an aligned plane. It's aligned very slightly lawful evilly, which to, let's say, if you're going classic paladins, which is a reasonable choice to make over like a, an adventure that's saving Baldur's Gate from devils, somebody's going to be the hero, that they have some level of conflict. 
in their lawful good, right? Presumably a paladin. And you're going to hell. So, you know, there's there's some nice stuff you can play with with that player for teasing them, for I'm working with them. interested to see if they add more around alignment with Descent into Avernus coming out soon. Right. Because it's, it's kind of hard to look at the Blood War and ignore alignment. I agree. I mean, they've done it pretty well so far. However... It, you know, once we really start getting into more planar lore, it gets a lot harder to really ignore alignment as a as a thing that is kind of just an inherent part of the D&D universal laws. Right. You know, and I think that like Warhammer 40K and Warhammer, it's part of this culture. It's part of this culture. And so it carries forward. You know, like if you're a newcomer to the 40K verse, it's dense. It's hard to find your foothold. It's got a lot of lore. It's got a lot of crunch. The same is true of Warhammer Fantasy, you know, and, and that's by design. And there's a lot of heritage there. D&D is the same. Uh, D&D actually, I think, came first, you know, so maybe has more. But alignment is, is part of it. And it's it's got to stay part of the game. Like I said, I think that's part of the big reason that 4th Edition was so unpopular with so many players because it didn't feel like D&D. And part think, of that was, how do you have your alignment yeah, tied I to it? I think that was a big part of it. Was It was well-designed and mathematically solid. It just didn't have the same feeling. So on that note, let's talk about some of the, the lore that this is, just very briefly for all of the alignments. And we'll go, I guess, starting from lawful good down to chaotic evil or maybe some others down in the evils as far as what that looks like in the game so you have some idea because as the players get supernatural powers or as you as a player playing your character you want some sense of how to tie it into something bigger it's always awesome to as a player to be like sucked into this other plane of existence even if it's only for like a scene or two and then you're spit back out because it's it really gives you this your players a sense of like oh wow we're just tiny little mortals in this giant cosmological wheel I want spell jammer so bad. I know. Uh, all right. So, you know, lawful good. What's the plane of lawful good? If we think of this as a wheel, this would be, the I great guess, wheel. the top of yeah. the wheel. Depends. Top it depends left, what picture you're looking maybe, at. of the wheel. But, yeah, you have Mount Celestial, which or Celestia and Seven Heavens, whatever you want to call it. It's usually the lawful good. Um, it, different editions give you more detail on this than others. You know, it, it's there's enough detail there that we could probably do a whole episode talking about Mount Celestia. Yeah, I would say instead, you know, like Mount Celestia and the Seven Heavens is just as exactly as you can imagine it from lore and mythology in, in the human world. It you know? is. I will say one campaign I've always wanted to try to do is evil characters assaulting Mount Celestia. I always feel it would like be a really the inverse fun campaign. of, of the good in, characters going the, insulting hell. The inverse. I always thought that would be that a would cool be fun. One. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you get know, to fight all the things. It's you'd one of the few times you can really fight. make a party of evil characters work well. Right. I think because right. gives you enough rails to put the game on. While we talk about these, there are there. I think that some of the best descriptions of these different planes, and it's still valid in today, was in second edition. Actually, if you can go and find an old copy of Deities and Demigods, they go through this in quite a lot of detail. Sean K. Reynolds, the author of that book, continued to work on a lot of other books on that note in this edition, in third edition, and in Pathfinder. So he's a good resource to go find and, and get info about it. Dude knows his deities. He made most of them. I know. So what's, uh, <laughs> if not lawful good, what's chaotic good? Chaotic good is, uh, you get a couple different names for that. Olympias, Arborea, Arvandor. But that's my favorite one. Sounds coolest. I kind of have always imagined this like a wild set of, and this has been scripted from the, the second edition version, of like planes full of the biggest and wildest monsters, plus also like kind of the realm that Conan would run around in. It's a very elf-like realm. Yeah, but lots of, you know, like I guess cross-referencing, this is like your uh, green-white deck in Magic the Gathering. <laughs> 
Don't open up that can of worms. This okay, is, okay, I'll leave other, it. I'll leave it closed. We're gonna do a whole closed. other system. Yeah, elves and fae. Yeah. You know, they they you come know. from this place. You had El- Elysium, or Elysium. 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 Wow, I got two mispronunciations there. Yeah, impressive. Elysium. Elysium is like and this is neutral good. It's like the perfect place. This is the place of like beautiful flowers everywhere. It's good. It's yeah. everything is is beneficial. It's nice. Always perfect. Whatever. But see, it's of course so relative you know so like we think of flowers because i don't even know like what does that come from the sound of music something like that but if i imagine an orc's version of that he probably isn't gonna imagine flowers i don't no. know he probably hates flowers you figured out for you but but it's it's the neutral good place of not too strict not too wild just in the middle and good so I've always been fascinated by the neutral planes. That's They're my, my favorite. I think my favorite is the lawful neutral plane, actually. It's the most interesting. So we're talking about Mechanus? Mechanus, yeah. Or Nirvana, depending upon what wherever. edition you look at. Right. So lawful neutral Mechanus, I think, is the one that's. Uh, it's it has the Modron and lots of clockwork craziness. It's the leader of the Modron. It's, it's the best. Primus is the leader yep. of the Modron, right? Who also. He also acts as the judge a lot of the time, cosmologically. And the root of the Transformers in the Marvel verse. Of course. So, you know, big win for me. Anyway, uh, Mechanus is interesting because it's like not ever violent. Well, it's not the right word for it. It's, it Mechanus is not ever uh, malevolent, but at least not intentionally. But that doesn't mean it's not harmful. He's objective. You know, yeah, right. it's, it's objective. It's it's right, and, and it's very functional, and it's very orderly. It's like a Modron march, right? You know? Everybody gets in line, and you will follow orders. And if not, then you will be repaired, whether you want to be or not. Pretty much, I think that it would be fun, although it it it's hard to sort of visualize and do it well. I think to uh, run some part of a game in limbo, you know, because. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in Limbo. As opposed to Mechanus? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the chaotic neutral version. I mean, it's right? yeah, it's very hard to visualize Limbo and play in that space. Right. The plane of nothingness and ever-changingness and... Chaotic neutral. Constant chaotic neutral chaos, chaos, Slot, chaos. Slotty everywhere. Big toad-like slotty. I love the slotty. They're great. I also love the gif. I think they're fascinating. I think that both sides of them are just weird and interesting. Um, but I also really like the neutral neutral, which you enlightened me earlier today about concordant opposition. I always thought of it just as sigil. That, yeah, the outlands. But it really, it's mainly because sigil is the only thing of note in that whole plane, right. pretty much. Right. There's a giant spire with sigil on the top, and the rest of it is just the outlands. So. And a lot of this, this eh. like D&D mythology is based on, in many ways, old human mythology, both Greek and Norse. And right? They take little bits from all over. So, you know, like, Sigil is the middle realm, and a big spire in the middle is a pretty clear analog to the Yggdrasil in Norse mythology yeah. and other sorts of stuff. So, like, when you're looking to bring some of these kind of abstract places to life, and in my mind, one of the most abstract is the middle. It's not the prime material where we yeah. exist, you know? Like, it's easy to pull from pre-existing mythological sources definitely i mean there's a lot of lazy second edition books that are like hey here's the egyptian version of our gods you know like here's <laughs> yes. the egyptian pantheon for D and oh, they're here's named the- ra and isis yeah. and set here's the norse one and you know you have a lot of those analogs towards like real religions not not a ton and they're not all done well 
Um, but you will find bits of that in different supplements. Yep. So what about the evil dimensions, the evil planes? These are the ones that players tend to be very familiar with because they're like the ones that adventurers may go into or where from evil comes. Right. And there, there are, of course, three, just like the others. There's the lawful evil one. Let's start with the neutral evil because it's the most boring one, I guess. Okay. The Hades or the Grey Waste. Yeah, so, you know... A bunch of Yugoloths hanging out. uh, We knew that this was a plane back in 2nd edition where they started talking about planes and planescape and all of that stuff. But nobody... There was no supplement that dealt with neutral evil plane. There was no none that really dealt with Hades in his realm or anything like that. It was just sort of like... It's there. There for completeness's sake. Until finally, I think it was Pathfinder that came out and added color to it. Bless Paizo for this. Good job, guys and gals. They added color to it in a way that let you use all of your prior material. You know, it was a great example of adding content to neutral evil uh, as opposed to just rewriting it or, or retconning it or anything like that. And what they said was, okay, so you have like lawful evil and we'll come to that. And that's like devils and stuff. And you have the abyss and that's chaotic evil and demons and stuff. And then it's like, what's neutral evil? And they were like, oh... Obviously, it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's death. It's the epitome of death. It's not lawful or chaotic. It's just the end of things, the end of it. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, right. that, that makes yeah. good sense. That's actually kind of scary. It's like scarier than maybe the other two because it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Unfeeling. Right. It's just the end. Just the end. Coming for you. So uh, I think that that's a good reframing, you know, that keeps whatever other source material you may have in your homebrew. So, I one of the things I like about lawful evil hell is that it's not always your enemy? Question mark. I, lawful evil is my favorite because it it's literally like the corporate ladder. The demon, the devils, as they move up, they transform. Right. The epitome thereof. It, it it's literally yeah, it's literally the corporate ladder. I love it because the, the demon's like trying to get promoted so he can be upgraded to the next demon form, which goes further down. Me, the next devil devils, form. Devils. These are devils we're talking devils. about. Devils. And different. it starts and it starts on level one, which is the first level of hell, and then you graduate eventually after you serve that lord of hell well enough to level two. And each level is different all the way through nine. Yep, they all have their differences. Some are and the Lord of over. Hell, all the children of Asmodeus, who is at the ninth level, and the ninth most powerful level of Hell, the inverse of Mount Celestia, right, is Asmodeus. And it's basically just him. Just hanging it's out. It's like him in some nebulous hellscape lair that's his. And uh, he's a god, so, you know, he does whatever he wants there, basically. Um it, there have been a bunch of different adventures that take you through the different levels to different points and have clear ideas about crossing over to the next one. So that it's actually a, a decent amount of source material for stringing together a game that is, to your earlier point, a bunch of characters assaulting hell, trying to take out the devil. I mean, when you really get down to it, even like a group of level 20s don't have much of a chance assaulting either like hell or Mount Celestia. However... It can be very fun to go with it. I mean, you just have to be... It becomes interesting strategy game at that point. It has to be. Because you're working with the powers of, like, wish and... Yeah, if, you're, if you really lean, if you lean into that, you know, you can you can go with it. Like, all right, right we're, we're at that Super Saiyan level now, and that's just how it is. So tell me about you, what you think about the Abyss, the chaotic evil plane. I think the Abyss is fantastic in that it's just an infinite... And so, and it's based on a series of portals. And so, because you don't have that order, 
it, it's really flexible from a GMing point of view. Yeah. You know, there's not like there's kind of a hierarchy with Demi Gorgon and whatnot, but it's there it's are very, powerful be, demons because yes. of its chaotic nature. You you really can kind of mold it and use it how you need to. You always have another layer of the abyss you could use if someone gets going there or stuck there. It could be right. whatever you want. Right. And while there are also nicely defined ones, so I like the the, the abyss for a lot of those same reasons as a DM, especially because it's really good fodder for the trope of ninjas kicking the door. You need something to get things going and you can just drop something random in from a, a portal or wherever you can suck the PCs away and have them spit spat back out from the abyss through some ordeal. And it's always an ordeal. Demons are very you, easy villains. You don't want to go everybody there. to fight. Even like if you have a party full of chaotic evil characters, the demons are worse, man. They're just bad, which makes it easy. You know, it's like a very easy yep. tool as a DM. Definitely. So it's, you know, the, it's a good one. I enjoy it. So what's the difference, in your opinion, between alignments between creatures or NPCs or monsters and players, PCs? Honestly, I don't really think about the alignment of creatures much. I don't really think about alignment much when I'm framing encounters at all, honestly. I think about the PCs and what they're likely to do based on like kind of what they believe or what they value. And for me, when I look at monsters, I just use what's the most appropriate for the situation, and I could care less what their alignment is. I really care more like what their motivation is. Yeah, I think that there's an interesting data point about alignment that in prior editions, alignment is immutable and it's fixed and it's not to be changed. And if it's yeah. changed, then there's a big cost. Yeah, you obviously, know? if I'm playing a devil or something, well, he's going to be lawful. You know, there's, but, there's but certain characters where you're going to lean into it. The, the point of it. What's interesting to me about it is not that it's fixed or costs, like that that was what the rules said. And then in those very editions in all the games and video games and others, based off of them, the most memorable characters we have are often characters who broke that rule. And I think that that's one of the things that alignment can do really well. And here's an easy example in Dungeons and Dragons. Dragons are tied to alignments, right? The metallic dragons, gold, brass, bronze, silver, copper are good. All of them. Some law or chaos, but good. All of them. And the chromatic dragons, red, blue, black, white, green, are evil. All of them. And some level of law or chaos, but bad. They're all bad. And it can be a very powerful tool to give the players the opportunity to change that, to influence it in some way, or to break it as the DM, the mold, to change their expectations. I mean, yeah, throwing you know? like an evil brass dragon at the party can be fun right. because they don't right. see it coming. Well, this is one of and the questions it, that I think Pathfinder did. It, really- it's a challenge though once you move away from human characters, like dragons are individuals enough that you could argue they would change alignment. They're yeah, not they tied have personality. To a, they're not tied to uh, a place like... A gold dragon that's not lawful good maybe, you yeah. know? An interesting well, choice. You can do it, but I think one of those things is, at least as a player, is I... If unless it's done well, I'm gonna feel like what the fuck, man! Like you just you just bait and switching me. Like this is bullshit. Right. Next, I know like there's gonna be some drow hero with a panther and two swords or something saving the day. Like what the <laughs> hell is this? Womp womp. <laughs> I, and I think that that would just be you know it, it's a matter of how much of it is gotcha versus how much you lead up to it. And in your example, like why if I see a gold dragon, I would expect him to be lawful good. There's clearly broadcast signals, you know. So as the DM, you should provide some way by which for the players to figure out that it's not yeah, although it's a dragon so it's probably hard if it's done well it can be awesome you know, you know like do I've it intentionally seen, i've seen adventures with that written into it 
where you know you have a good dragon that's become evil for whatever reason. But it only works in that way because you have this expectation that the dragon is good because yes. of the alignment system. Because it is, well, they also have this bright color that kind of signifies, hey, this this color is very clear of certain personality traits and behavior. Well, this is why I think Paizo went in their D&D derivative, in their setting, and they had a, a whole island, a whole kingdom that was run by a gold dragon who was experimenting with eugenics. So, you know, is that is that a good gold dragon? Yeah, yeah, Did his yeah. alignment change? We don't know. You know, and they never answer that question. That's a strong narrative as an example. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so I, I agree. I think that it depends very much on how you how you set it up. Exactly. Um, but it can be good. You know, like I, you can definitely have the rare, like good Ithalid mind flare, right? I've, we've seen that in games recently. Right. That's actually, I mean, that's... And the whole party's like, oh, no. And then you're like, oh, he's not a bad guy. I that's canon. It creates tension, right? Yeah, and it was canon. It was, uh, I think, Out of the Abyss where we saw that. Sorry, spoilers for anyone spoilers. playing that campaign. But, yeah, it was a good example. And because that's where you see that expectation of the players being used to create good tension. Agreed. Because almost even a newbie player knows, or at least another player is going to tell them, like, oh, shit, a mind flare, that's bad news. And everyone's like, oh, no. One of the one of the best things that alignment is doing, I think, is using it as a tool for exactly that, creating tension. You know, and uh, another easy one is it was a game I ran once upon a time. This is a classic example. You should steal it, everybody who's listening. I had a paladin and I had a bard. The paladin is lawful good, of course. The bard is lawful evil, and so I made those players have their other as their best friend. It was great, you know, and they played off it very excellently, but. Without alignment, that w- we wouldn't have had that. You know, it was only because I made them pick each. Is what that they're... something you set up at character creation? Yes. Yes. Exactly, and and it and it served us really well throughout that it, whole. It's a great move because you could see possible issues right. between those two characters, so you create that bond. And both players like the banter, you know. So like, it, it definitely can serve that really well. And the alignment system backed us up in that regard, specifically because in this was a third edition game, you know, in some derivative or another. Mm-hmm. So there were lots of spell effects that were tied to it, right? So they had mechanics. So you know, the paladin could only get a benefit from the bard if he was willing to traffic with the bard's ideology about storytelling and song. As he told the story, not exactly accurately, according to the paladin. The paladin would only be able to heal the bard, for instance, uh, if the bard was willing to let him be blessed by his good deity. And these are easy to bake in mechanics in 5th edition, too. You know, you can even just say something like, add another ability to a, 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 an extra spell, or something like if you wanted to play off of alignment with abilities they already have using disadvantage or advantage based upon conflicting alignment to achieve even their goal. Yeah. You know, yeah, disadvantage and advantage could be a fun mechanic. Or adding to, a bonus die or subtracting a bonus for. die, you know, like to, to punch there's, it up a little bit. There's certainly ways you can lean into the mechanics more for alignment if you want to. Uh, I think magic items are one place where we still see stronger mechanics for that, especially sent, like sentient magic items. Right. Um, is a good example of something where the alignment system is still strongly mechanical there. Right, because because it matters the, how the alignment might take you the the sentient item might take you over. Right, it has its own ego. It might force you to do what it wants, which can be helpful in those situations to kind of have like some set rules. One of the things that I have done in previous games that I, I think is uh, I don't know was just maybe I'm not the only one, but I, it's definitely something I want to encourage amongst other players of the game is thinking when thinking about alignment and specifically specifically toward good and evil about how to use it in a more useful way than this old intractable, you know, sort of simplistic good and evil debate, and maybe to leverage some of this, the thinking that came from 3rd edition around the Book of Exalted Deeds and the Book of Vile Darkness. So 
this maybe doesn't come as a surprise, given that one of my favorite implementations of this system is the D20 Modern, where you pick whatever you're allegiant to, right? But when I think of what the Book of Exalted Deeds talks about, or the Book of Vile Darkness, now both magic items in the game, uh, what does that represent in the game? Let's say you have a character who finds one of these things. You know, how should you as the DM adjudicate it? What's the difference that you should make if you have a paladin who reads the Book of Exalted Deeds through story mechanics before and after? So, or uh, you have a villain who was defeated and then finds a book of vile darkness and then becomes more powerful. What's, is it, is it just like he has more damage dice, you know, or like how can you punch it up? In terms of a character aspect. Right, to make it feel. Rather than just like you have more dice to roll. So I use these to solve the trolley problem. And the trolley problem is good fodder because the trolley problem is a no-win situation. You're always implicated no matter what you do, right? You flip the switch and kill the five. You flip the switch. Don't flip the switch. Kill the other one. You know, like push the old the fat man over the track and kill him. There's no easy way out of that by design. So when I think about exalted and I say, well, what it, what would it mean to be good? You know, and you sort of go, all right. In basic, like, lawful good terms, you're basically altruistic, which means that you're sacrificing yourself to give. For somebody else. So you're going to give up your own health, life, wealth, fortune for their benefit because they are more important than you. So an exalted person would say, no, that's the trolley problem. You know, like if I'm a paladin and I'm a holy warrior and I will sacrifice my life to save my daughter and my my partner and they will go on, but they're not as powerful as me. And if I let them die, I could kill the person who did it. Well, that's an intractable. It's a trolley problem. Right? So an exalted person instead would say, I choose option C. Everybody lives and I convert that guy. And he's not going to kill us anymore. And this is going to be hard and it's challenging. So, you know, you have to know the player who's going to want that. But, like, use it as an option. It's a fantasy game. It's a, a fantasy, escapist fantasy game of the imagination. So this is great opportunity to go, yeah, you want to kick up your alignment in the game? Give the player who leans into that a way to step it up even more. A way to make good be not just, I sacrifice myself for your benefit, but what I'm going to do now, you're going to benefit, I'm going to benefit, and our foe is going to benefit also. Like Aikido, you know, pay attention to your opponent's energy and protect them as well. How would you do that mechanically, though? Would it be just advantage, disadvantage kind of deal? Uh, I think that I would have to make up mechanics because I mean, yeah, the, the Book of Exalted s- Deeds had them for third edition. They don't have that in fifth edition. What What I'm more interested in is how do I give that, is that more as e- a goal is to that the more player? Like evil good kind of spectrum. Well, I mean, if if I had a player who decided to want to do that and uh, and they found a way that they might be able to achieve that, sure, maybe I would give them. It's an easy source of inspiration, which is basically advantage-disadvantage. Maybe you give them obvious bonuses. The Book of Exalted Deeds did it's that. It's funny like, because... Stacked you a bunch of bonuses. Despite having like the ideals, bonds, and flaws system to look at inspiration, we instantly look back at that in the alignment chart, and we're like, oh, right. you're being very uh, chaotic neutral right now. I guess you're you can have some inspiration. Right. You know, like, it's oh, an easy part of Good lawful neutral decision. Here's some inspiration. So the counter to that, and one of the things I like to really... That's worked well for me for providing a good villain that players really love to hate, that they really want to sink their teeth into beating that villain, which is very satisfying. And that's, of course, what you want to give your players at the game, is to make a distinction between, let's say, just normal chaotic evil uh, or neutral evil or any normal evil, which is basically selfish. You know, I'm taking from you for my own benefit, which is also kind of chaotic, mm-hmm. like me first, you know, my yeah. decision first. And to take it a step further and say, no, 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 no. In this scenario of the trolley problem, the truly evil individual not only do they 
knock the trolley off the track over the cliff, but then they go murder all the people who are tied up and then kill themselves. So nobody can have any justice out of the matter. Like they do really bad, bad stuff. Like the worst for everybody involved. This is what demons do, right? This is what the really bad, the demons as Paizo called them, you know, from neutral evil, like the worst, imagine the worst possible thing, you know, except it's a supernatural being, so it can't really kill itself. It can just make it worse for everybody involved. And that is something that players will happily chase down. It gives you really good fodder for your overrighteous paladin to wantonly smite because everybody agrees it's bad because the very de- by the very definition, it's bad for everybody. So essentially for you, what those points are is that end of the spectrum where all of right. those points meet. Right, right. Which I, as the DM, think about for story motivations. You know, it's a carrot I dangle in front of players who want to be exalted to give them rewards and help them achieve goals that they find satisfying for what does exalted look like? What's a path that's a everybody wins path, not a least cost path? It's more right? of a magnitude for right. them to. And, and move for planning through. story and for planning adventures and also for the villains where I go, all right, there's like the normal evil that you can understand that corrupted lord you can understand the paladin who fell you can understand the selfish dragon maybe even you know we people who play D tend to be inquisitive and smart and imaginative so they're going to try to get in these characters heads so if you want to provide them a villain that they really are going to sink into then you want it to be something and like cthulhu type stuff is this in the madness realm of crazy mm-hmm. but like what if you wanted to go really they're, they're powerful and they've traveled the plains and you want to pit them against demogorgon or asmodeus or any of that you need evil the likes of which that they're really going to hate. See, for me, I'm so much more likely to do the opposite and cut more things off of it and just do like a lot of chaos spectrum. But you like law and chaos versus good and evil. I think it's, it's a little cleaner and easier without getting into the moral ethics debate as much. And I think it's just easier for people to grasp onto and like not have to worry quite as much. Mm -hmm. And most of the time when you're looking at the decisions the characters are going to be making, if it's simpler, it's better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an easier kind of thing. Like, law and chaos is, is sort of analogous in my mind to ethics, right? Are you ethical or not? It's not a moral question. It's an yeah. ethical question. I mean, that's how they frame it. Versus, back. like, good or evil yeah. is a moral question. Like, is it, you know, good or bad? If you look back for the old books, that's how it's framed. It is right. exactly that moral slash ethic divide based on the two axes there. But for me, it, I, I have trouble doing that because the cosmology itself is tied to those things. Right. So honestly, it's just something I just kind of don't use much. I, I It's too much work for me as a DM to get something out of alignment that's worth it, aside from giving players basic rails for their behaviors. Yeah. And for me, it's like, look, if you're going to write lawful evil on your sheet, that should mean something. You need to you need to act in accordance with that, or like let's retcon it and just change it, because maybe you didn't understand what that means writing that on your right. paper. Or you, you were trying to signal something that we should you know we've already talked about and it doesn't fit or Right. Like but, there's nothing wrong with being like, hey, like I didn't quite understand what this alignment meant and I'd like to rec like let your player do that. It's not a big deal. Uh, right. I think that like, it, you don't changing have to punish alignment them shouldn't be a big deal. And you can even make it an interesting part of character growth or a character arc where they actually change alignment. You know, because of their experience or whatever, right. you don't you don't want to create a D and D character that does is the same through the whole campaign. I mean, uh, that's very boring. I, you can do it. Probably, and it can be I would fun. agree. I, I want to. I would say that there's actually one player that we play with that 
he is a he's a specialist and he plays the same, plays the same type character in every game. And he's the same character throughout the entirety but, in all of his games and he enjoys it thoroughly and he's I, a great player. He does it so well, you don't even care. You're like, this is great. This is awesome. Keep doing your thing, man. Uh, so that's as, how you gotta treat a specialist player. Just let him do it. As another example, I had a DM once upon a time, he ran a, a game for me and he he was a little more old school than me. And all of the bad guys we would ever fight were monsters and they were all chaotic evil. Because that's how his world worked. That's how his mind worked. That's mm-hmm. what he, we learned from. You know, like, monsters it's, are bad. That means the baddest the baddest chaotic evil. There's no evil. moral hesitance to killing them. When, when I ran games for him eventually, right, exactly. There's no there's no, there's no, no qualm with, like, you can kill yeah. that thing, there's no qualm. It's bad. It's, it's, a, a, it's a crazy... It's an orc. It's a, or even it's a yeah. it's a crazy made-up snot monster that he made up, you know? It's essentially something you can kill without feeling bad. Right. And when I ran games for him, he made a comment at one point. He found it really interesting that most of the bad guys that he fought in my game were humanoids. They were almost all, with very few monsters, humanoids. And I I realized at that time it was because I could give them alignments. It was because I could easily give them alignments that sometimes were very conflicting with the PCs and sometimes were a little conflicting with the PCs. So it let me set up as a DM these encounters where it could go a variety of ways. Yes, I definitely myself love using more humanoid type of villains because one, it's easier for the players to relate to them. And I really like pushing that everyone is the hero of their own story. The best villains are the villains who don't think they're villains. Like Thanos is a great example. To him, he's just doing what needs to be done. He's saving the universe in his mind. Exactly. And those are the, usually the most compelling villains because on a certain level we can understand on a certain level we say, Oh, I see I see why you're doing this or where you're going with this. Even if I don't agree with it, there's like a level there that you can kind of understand the rationale. And for me, like I don't think about alignment alignment as much as I do about that. I think that in this edition of the game, maybe this is a controversial thing. I mean, of course, know your table, know your players, but changing alignment is a thing that you should let the players do. You know, like it used this to is have why restrictions. It, it did. It used to be like a restrictive thing. You'd lose experience. Yeah, you know, like you couldn't. You had to wait for a year or something like which crazy was stuff. Ridiculous, because if it was a good part of your character arc, like why are you punishing the player for developing their character? And you can see where we fall on this spectrum, obviously, you and I, because we are in the camp of like this is a tool that used to talk about stuff at the table and maybe don't use it at all because well, whatever yeah. you know your table, you know. So, but I think that it's worth calling out specifically in this edition that like you should just let the players and I would argue actually in any edition let the players change alignment right like it's an escapist fantasy game be the character you want to be especially now that there's not these mechanical consequences for changing it like you can switch your alignment and it will literally affect nothing yeah and if you and the DM can figure out a way to tie it into the story then you'll be more rewarded well it also just makes for better character development right but don't feel constricted by it right like and I think that they say this a lot in in fifth edition which is don't be constricted by the rules do with them what you want to do it's one of those things it's a system that if you enjoy alignment lean you can lean into it a little bit and use it if you don't like it you can ignore it 100 percent, and it probably won't affect your game experience at all so do you think that monsters can change alignment too like is there a reason like a devil couldn't couldn't lose its alignment or is it certain monsters no because they are literally from a plane and they themselves are made of the same thing like they are a being of of law and order. So a, a uh, like a devil, you know, a I, devil I would is personally is have issues with that. Law you can, incarnate. You cannot change a devil from lawful evil. You just can't because so they how, are they are a lawful evil being, like by nature. How would like, I reflect then in my game an angel who falls? 
Well, that's a good... Well, you could do that. They changed their alignment. But is an angel a monster or a humanoid? Well, is a devil a monster or a humanoid? That's a good point. See, and this is where... Yeah, right? Like, Because we can all see an angel falling. So one of the things... I, I can't see a devil rising. Right. And this is one of the things... As gets close, this happens, I will give him that. This happens in fiction sometimes. If you're into the like Forgotten Realms fiction, yeah. which I, I have a hot and cold relationship with. Uh, but it happens also in Planescape quite a lot. And I think that... It's totally legitimate to have monsters, especially planar creatures, change their alignment because it's one of those fixed rules. So you have to, at sometimes, very intentionally well, I agree. break you that just, rule. You just have to be careful. Certain monsters are just inherently more tied to alignment than others. Yes. And I mean, I love the idea that we, you know, playing into that monsters are people. You know I love that. That's like right. one of my favorite things to do right. to my players. Right. Like, don't you feel bad about killing this goblin fan? Like, look at his his starving family. You know, and people are right. like, I hate you so much. <laughs> but it's it's a fun thing you can kind of play with because for so long we like looked at these monsters as like monsters, and now it's like, no, this is a people. Like a lot of the time, it's hard to like look at even goblinoids and say it's not a people, right? right? And so I think in that regard, I I would rather lean into monsters that are not so much tied to their alignment that changing it doesn't feel jarring i think if you're going to do like an angel falling or a devil rising it takes a lot more work on your side to make it justified and it's a bigger more epic kind of event agreed whereas a good a goblin who is an evil is not as big of a deal or a orc who decides you know he wants to be a lawful good paladin Sure, like it, those it, are I mean, those it, are fun playing against type moments. It comes but back when, to where we started. When you start breaking the fabric of the universe, is where I'm like, okay, now I'm having like, right. there's no demon right. that is lawful. Okay, there just is not. It's a it's a, where we started <laughs> with this that there's a it's a spectrum. The whole of it is a spectrum, and uh, I think you know, I one of the things I like. You're right. You're like there, for some reason, it's easier for me to conceive of a devil becoming not evil or not right? lawful it than it is for a demon to become not chaotic evil. But that's because in my mind, there's so that, you know, it, but I it, also could conceive of a wizard who would summon a demon and then bind it to him. And if he was lawful neutral and uh, he had to have a familiar that matches alignment, he's now taken some feet that lets him have this, what's a, a quasit, I guess a demon, a little chaos demon that matches his alignment. And now who is that little homunculus, you know, something. I mean, I love the idea of a closet wearing a suit and being a butler. <laughs> and I mean, I've used it in a game before myself. Yes. However, so <laughs> I guess, you know, alignment, given that it's a spectrum, it basically means you have to do with it what you want to do with it, but it is part of the game. And I think that it's actually better to lean into it intentionally than, to haphazardly kind of throw it in there, you know, but it's, a, it's an easy tool to talk about with players, you know, because it's, it's very abstract and well, there are no, it has no teeth by default. I don't say it's easy, but it's easier than it used to be. I mean, if there's any way to talk about morals and values, like you'd <laughs> hope it would be over this fantasy board game that Good we luck. play. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's going to come down to, does it matter at your table? Because if your players don't care about alignment, don't don't make it a big focus of your game. Right. Don't waste your time. Don't waste their time. Right. Do what is more fun for you. Have the conversation. Make sure that you're all on the same page. And Session then, zero that and move on. And then go roll some dice. All right. <laughs> okay. That's Thought it for we, this session. Alignment is done. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Over and out.